0: So we are working our way through the Lord's Prayer. Today we are addressing what is, I think, the most common and yet also most painful thing that we will face as believers. It is the question of forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that in ministry comes up a lot, uh, a great deal. Uh, People often want to know whether they must forgive, and if they must forgive, then how do they Forgive? And they ask these questions not because the idea is difficult, but because the practice is difficult. Forgiveness is hard. Now, we've probably all been hurt at some point in our lives. Sometimes we're hurt by the same person over and over again. And some of us carry very deep wounds because of that, because of things that were done or things that were ignored. And sometimes this is from people, sometimes this is from institutions, and indeed, shamefully, even by the church itself. So, being told right now by Jesus Christ that we must forgive can be a very difficult thing for us to to receive. And of course, just as we've all been hurt, we've probably all done hurt as well. We've probably all hurt somebody. And for many of us uh, that know that we've done something very wrong, I think the feeling of being unforgiven can be traumatic as well, perhaps in its own way as traumatic as, as being on the receiving end of the wrong. Many of us, having done something terrible, carry with us every day a sort of shame, a burden of shame that we carry with us for the things that we've done So before we get into the whole question of how it is that we do forgive others, I want us to look at ourselves first. And as we look at ourselves, I want you to see the good news. Look with me, please, at Matthew chapter 6. Use the new patent-pending Daughters of the King ribbon system, please, for Matthew 6. We'll do uh, what has now been dubbed the Christchurch flick in a few minutes and uh, go to Colossians. But uh, the novelty is still very fresh. I'm still on about them. It'll grow old, but, uh, yeah. But, isn't it awesome? Use the ribbons, please. Matthew 6. For those of us that have done something wrong, it is traumatic not to be forgiven. The psalm says, happy are they whose transgressions are forgiven. And why are we happy when we've been forgiven? The good news is that we can be forgiven and that it releases us. Verse 12 of Matthew says, forgive us our debts. Here's the good news. There's no way Jesus could possibly have taught us to pray this prayer if it were not possible to be forgiven. The Lord's prayer would be complete drivel if the Lord said, pray, Father, forgive you. And he wouldn't or couldn't or didn't. It would be nonsense. The good news is buried right there in the command to ask. Note the word debts there in the Matthewan form of the Lord's Prayer. They uh, frequently would use this image of debt, literally a money debt, as a, a means to help people picture or understand what it looked like to have done something wrong. When you've sinned. There's a sort of burden over you, an obligation, if you like, to put it right. Someone's going to pay for this. In the context of a relationship with God, a heavenly father, week one, whose name is hallowed, who rules the universe as the king and the judge, week two, as Tracy preached, the God who in week three, we heard, provides all things. In the context of that holy Judge and provider, every single one of us has fallen short of his standards and him, and so we owe him. We are in his debt. We owe the Father. Debt, in Aramaic thought, became idiomatic, not just of any old wrongdoing, but of sin itself. Not just person-to-person offences, but person-to-God offences such that when they heard the word debt, they thought the word sin. They equated the two. And here's the good news for those of you that feel shame and regret and feel burdened by a sort of obligation that you cannot shift. If this simple Lord's Prayer says... Father, forgive us our debts, then Jesus must be teaching us that he can and will and does. Don't lose Matthew. We'll come back to it, but let's flick briefly to Colossians. Yeah, it doesn't sound the same, does it? The rustling's gone. It's just now a sort of a dull thud. But let's flick to Colossians. We're not going to be into Colossians for too long because... Uh, we studied the whole book of Colossians a few months ago, but look briefly, please, at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, just as the Jews had a physical mark on the flesh, denoting a greater spiritual truth behind it, they were saved, so to the unforgiven have a sign of their sin, and their sign is death. Paul says to them, what's up, corpses? (laughs) It's not the normal way that we begin our services, you know, liturgically in the acclamation. prefer something with some hallelujahs and a bit more friendly. Good morning, saints. But Paul says, hey, what's up, corpses? Hi, flesh sacks. How's it going? Terrible. Very rude, isn't it? You were dead, though. Not anymore. You were dead, men and women, walking, but now... Verse 13 says, God made us alive together with him. You see, he died, he rose, so we die, we rise. It really is a very simple equation. That's the gospel in the fewest words I can come up with. And having been forgiven all of our trespasses, how many? All of them come up with a sin. He's bigger. He can forgive it all by canceling, verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Not just the debt now, but the record of the debt as well. The chirographon was a written note of indebtedness. It was a legal document, if you like. And here we see that the record is expunged. Famously, one of the most influentially forgiving people in the history of the universe, Nelson Mandela, once said, I can forgive. But I cannot forget. Sort of true. It's basically the best thing any human can do. But God goes further. God keeps no record of wrongs. He cancelled the record. It's a very strong word, cancelled. It means to obliterate. He filled the record with cordite and lit a match and blew it up. He blotted out and obliterated and took away. The record of the debt, not just the debt, but the record of it as well. How did he do it? How did he both pay off our debt and hack the federal database and delete all the records of it as well at the same time? Verse 14. I hope they're not listening. By nailing it to the cross is how he did it. You know this, don't you, that in the Greco-Roman world, when a criminal faced a charge that was beyond their capacity to redeem, then they would be killed for that charge, and the charge itself frequently would be nailed to the cross above their heads, along with them as they hung there. The record is expunged. The record is dealt with on the cross and nailed to it and taken away. Now, we're told how it works. That it is Christ who pays the price for your sins. When the light bulb went on in Luther's head, Luther described this thing as a wondrous exchange, whereby the infinite Christ in all of his holiness and hallowedness is substituted for the finite nature of our flesh and our sins, substituted indeed not just for our sins but for us ourselves it should be me on the cross and all of you. But instead, now I stand forgiven because he hung accused. And this is why Jesus knows this is coming. Jesus knows about the cross, knows about God's perfect plan in salvation history to deal with the debt and expunge the record as well. That is how, in the Lord's prayer, he can teach us to ask with such confidence to be taught with such confidence, to ask with such confidence, Father, forgive us our debts. He knows he can. He knows he will. He knows how it works. And I want to say to you, only when you know this are you ready to move on to the next line of this prayer. Only when you have that light bulb moment and you grasp some facet of that glorious exchange are you ready for the next one. Let's look at it though, anyway, just in case you're ready. Matthew twelve. Or Matthew six, twelve. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Now there must be something uniquely difficult about this command to forgive, because every other line of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus lets speak for itself, but this one uniquely comes with a commentary that we find in verses 14 and 15, just to drive home the point we must forgive. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Trespass is a slightly different word from debt. I think it's the more familiar word to us from the liturgical form of the prayer. It's clearly linked to debt, but it's not the same word. We find them both in that Colossians passage as well. They're linked, but trespass, I think, is a a sort of lighter weight, lower level kind of a word than debt. Trespass includes the concept of something um, less deliberate, more accidental. It literally, trespass, means a side slip, a fall or a fault, a lapse, a deviation, a moral misdeed. Just think about that idea of walking along a path and it gives way and you suddenly find yourself falling down and off the path. That's what the word means. No one does that on purpose. You're walking along and the ground gives way and suddenly a foot slips off the path. That's what the word trespass means. Imagine that path going through a minefield, how careful you would be to stay on the path, but the ground gives way and you find yourself trespassing in territory that you don't belong, deadly ground beneath your feet. That's what the word means. Colossians, you don't need to look at it, but again, it puts it very succinctly in chapter 3. It says, as the Lord has forgiven you the trespasses and the debts, so you also must forgive. There's no debate. There's no lack of clarity. It really is super-duper simple. So why do we find it so hard? If forgiveness is so clearly required, and it's so clearly provided by Jesus... Why is it the most difficult and complicated and frequent pastoral question that we get asked on the staff team? Well, there's a few superficial reasons that are very easy to deal with, but then there's one really big reason that I cannot help you with at all. That one will be down to you, but let's look through them at least. So why is forgiveness so difficult? Why do we find it so hard? Uh, Firstly, Perhaps we just haven't fully understood what forgiveness really is. Perhaps we're not doing it because we don't know what it even is. Let's make sure we do. Firstly, forgiveness is not pardon. So pardon is where you are let off the punishment that you deserve. Or where you are spared from the consequence of something that you really did. And a lot of people struggle to forgive because... They've conflated these concepts of of forgiveness and pardon. And if you think about it, you've been wired for justice. That was week two. We have a king. We have a judge. We're made in the image of God. We like justice. We like bad guys to get what they deserve. We yearn for it. That's a normal thing. We do want evil to be exposed. We do want the king and the kingdom to come again in all of its fullness. We do want perpetrators to be restrained until the Lord returns. And we do want victims to be healed. That was all in week two. Sometimes, church, our God-given desire for justice cuts across our God-given calling to be a people of grace. So I want you to know this. It is possible to forgive someone whilst at the same time expecting some form of redress for what they've done. You can testify against someone in court and forgive them at the same time. It's perfectly possible to do that. You can forgive someone but put in place a new policy to stop that thing from happening again. You can demand jail time for the perpetrator. Perhaps you can demand compensation for the victim. You can do all of those things and seek all of those things and still forgive because forgiveness is not pardon, simply letting someone off. Uh, Secondly, forgiveness, it's not tolerance. So tolerance is where you put up with something that you really dislike. That's what tolerance means. I tolerate crab meat in my sushi. I don't like it, but I see why it's there. It's basically a sort of crustaceous Epicurean spackle. It stops the roll from falling to bits. I tolerate it, just about. I tell you what, I don't tolerate. I don't tolerate deviled eggs. There's no need for them to exist. The satanic ovum, the, uh, the diabolical zygote. I mean, the clue's in the name. Why do we keep eating this stuff? It makes the exact same noise when you create it as it makes when you eat it. You know, it's not a food group. If, um, if they're most precious to you, forgive me. Uh, the Lord commands it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> a lot of people find it really hard to forgive because what they do is they confuse or they conflate forgiveness with tolerance. Forgiveness is not Tolerance, simply pretending something that you don't like really isn't all that bad. That's not tolerance. Neither is forgiveness approval. Approval is where something hurts you, but you change your mind and you say, it really isn't actually all that bad after all. I quite like it. And some people struggle to forgive because they're afraid that if they do forgive, that the person hurting them will take this as approval take this as a green light to do it some more. Forgiveness is not approval. Simply pretending that you like it when deep down it hurts. Neither is forgiveness excusing. Excusing is where you say the person couldn't help it. It's the way they're wired. All right, that's just who they are. They're in ENTP with a side salad of ADHD or some other string of letters, and therefore there was nothing they could do about it. It's their personality type. Leave them alone. Uh, it's their upbringing. You don't understand what they've been through. It's just the way they are. They've always been like this. No, no need to bring that under the lordship of Christ. They've done it for 40 years. So I guess you know, it must be all right. A lot of people struggle to forgive because they think somehow. They can't forgive until they can find a reason for why the person's doing what they're doing. And sometimes they think they must find a good reason for bad behavior before they can forgive. Sometimes, church, there are only bad reasons for bad behavior. Now, there is always an explanation. There is not always an excuse. C.S. Lewis once said in In many ways, forgiveness is the very opposite of all of those things that we've just listed, the opposite of pardon, tolerance, approval, and excuse. And he said this, Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse, after all the allowances have been made, and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless, being wholly reconciled to the person that has done it. To forgive, in the original language, meant to yield up or send away. It was a word that was sometimes used about divorce, a decisive break. It it never pretends anything about the sin. It simply parts permanent company with the grudge about the sin. That is what forgiveness is all about. Here's the big reason why many of us don't do it. And it's not our inability to use a dictionary. Neither is it our inability, strangely enough, to use scripture. I think it is simply because we have not had a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. That is why we do not forgive. We have not been knocked off our feet by Jesus. We have not been overwhelmed and convicted by grace where once we were only condemned by sin. It hasn't clicked. The light bulb has not gone on. We have not experienced freedom that comes from God. And so having not experienced that sense of forgiveness washing over us for ourselves, we've got none to offer anybody else in return. That's the big one. I can't help you with that. I can show you logic of scripture. I can share the good news. I can define the meaning of words. And I can introduce and explain and illustrate and apply three times in every single sermon. I can even sometimes on a good day alliterate what I illustrate and assignate what I apply. I cannot make you believe. That job is way above my pay grade. I'm quite chilled about it. I can't convert anybody. It's it's not my job. The Holy Spirit does that. It's between you and, and he. And in his grace, he even calls you to reach out to him. The Holy Spirit seeks to, you know the stuff about the cross, but he seeks to put it in the heart move it from the head to the heart. That's the Spirit's job. The Spirit, uh, it, it says in, in John's prologue to John's gospel, it says uh, that, that the Holy Spirit has poured upon us grace upon grace, or grace after grace. It's uh, like, like, you know, that you've been filled completely to the absolute brim with grace, and then having been filled completely to the absolute brim with grace, uh, the Holy Spirit grabs another identical amount of grace and just overfills Again until it flows out from you. Only when you've been overwhelmed and overfilled by grace are you ready to overwhelm and overflow with grace yourself. They say hurt people hurt people. I say forgiven people forgive people. And as you start to forgive, or perhaps just start to start to forgive, forgive please don't think that you suddenly have it all sorted now that you've forgiven a bit, or that I have. I have not got it all sorted. Note Jesus says that we are to do this daily, every single day. It's a daily prayer. Many of us might forgive a little bit and then forgive some more tomorrow. Some of us might keep that up for a decade and then suddenly unforgive a load all over again and have to start some more. It is a daily process just as we feed daily on his bread, so too we forgive daily in our hearts. Here's why it's a good idea to keep up with your daily forgiveness. The scholar H. Oppenheimer, he once said that unforgiveness is like falling snow. And when it first lands, it is relatively harmless and easily melted, but after a long time, and it's been impacted and trodden down, it becomes much harder to deal with, icy and quite lethal. Daily forgiveness is, is the way to deal. Uh, Terry Waite, some of you will know who he is. The, he was the special envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1980s. 1980s. He was famously kidnapped and held hostage in Lebanon for nearly five years. And uh, he suffered greatly, frequently for long periods of time, uh, handcuffed to a radiator and held in solitary confinement in the heat of, of Lebanon until his release in 1991 by the very people he had been sent to help. And after his release, he said this, Not only is forgiveness essential for the health of society, it is also vital for our personal well-being. Bitterness is like a cancer that enters the soul. It does more harm to those that hold it than to those whom it is held against. When he was released, kind of confused and bedraggled and emaciated, but absolutely razor-sharp in his mind and his heart, the press that gathered round to see him on his release were completely confounded by the amount of grace that this guy just oozed. And they were as confounded by his grace as I am by God's. Don't fully get it. It's too big. There's so many stories like this as well. There's so many stories like this. They make the front pages of the papers, not because they're really rare, but because they're amazing. They're so countercultural, these stories of forgiveness. Each tale of forgiveness that you hear is every bit as alien to our world as the God of grace who in Christ invaded it to save it. Grace is countercultural, grace is, is powerful. Forgiveness flows from forgiveness. And so, um, if you've struggled with it, like a lot of us have, And you struggled with forgiveness of yourself. And that started to inhibit your forgiveness of others. I've asked Mimi Irving uh, to come and share what I think is the most powerful story of forgiveness that I've ever heard in my life. Uh, And it's about my beloved brother and teacher, the Reverend Bill Irving, who converted on one of those two pews in the 70s. And uh, went on to pastor his own churches. Uh, I called him Bill, uh, Mimi Irving called him father or dad and these are words that she shared at his funeral in this building Mimi come and take the pulpit and share with us this account
1: well good morning um I am so grateful to be able to share this. The first time I ever read this portion, well, the full tribute, but this is just a portion of my father's tribute, my father insisted I read it to him first because he said, if not me, then when? I certainly won't be at my funeral. (laughs) So um, thank you for allowing me to continue this legacy, and I hope it speaks to you as it did to me many years ago. I'd like to first start with a verse. Colossians 3 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. September 1987, my brothers and I each received a life-changing phone call that our oldest brother, Dewey, had been a victim of a brutal crime and in critical condition. Our brother Dewey did not survive that attack, and I believe each one of us quietly wondered if any of us truly would. It was during the sentencing of this man who took my brother's life that I quietly observed what I believe to have been to this day my greatest lesson, learned from my father, my father's legacy, the legacy of forgiveness and of love. Before the court proceedings officially began, the father of the young man who killed our Dewey approached my father and knelt before him. Tears streaming his face, he asked my father for forgiveness for the actions of his son, Tony, approximately the same age as our Dewey, whose life ended at 28. I sat behind my father feeling such anger as I listened and watched my father, pull this father to his, from his knees to his feet and embrace him. And he then went on to say, We both have lost our sons in some fashion this day, but you still have your son to influence. Use this time well. I wasn't able to see my father's strength or the power of his forgiveness in those moments. I only felt amazing rage and wondered how my father could be so weak. It wasn't until years later, when my own family faced its own defining moment, as betrayal ripped through my family, that this story flooded back to my heart. It was then that I was unable to understand the power of forgiveness and the lifeline it provides each of us to Christ Jesus. A few months before my father died, and he was reflecting on his own passing, I decided to share this story with him and the impact he had had on me, and to thank him for his example of strength. To my surprise, he expanded on the story and shared with me details I didn't know. After the sentencing, my dad went to the prison, where he provided the young man who brutally murdered his oldest son a Bible, and he shared his own testimony of faith. And then he ultimately offered Tony forgiveness. My father went on to tell how they had exchanged letters over the years and asked if I would discreetly remove them from the home so my mom would not discover them. I'm not sure she can handle finding them after all these years, he pondered aloud. Not surprisingly, My mom knew of the exchange of these letters between my father and this young man. After all, who better to know without being told the depth and breadth of my father's heart than his wife of 60 years. It is my mom who has asked me to share this letter written by the man who killed my brother to understand the full impact of forgiveness. He wrote this letter about five and a half years after his crime while he was still in jail. February 24th, 1993. Dear Reverend and Mrs. Irving, I cannot tell you how much your letter means to me. I am very grateful for you attempting to send me a Mandarin Bible. But when I read your words of forgiveness, I find tears in my eyes, and my heart felt as though it would burst. Thank you very much for taking the time to write to me, I know that the tragic loss of your son has been a terrible pain and a burden for you to bear. The fact that you have still written to me speaks to your Christian love and convictions, for which I have great respect. I have prayed for you that you would forgive me and for God's salvation on a daily basis. It makes me feel good to know God has answered my prayers. Early in my confinement, I was befriended by my neighbor, Mr. Scott, who saw the burden of pain and melancholy that I continued to carry. He encouraged me to make a study of the Bible as you had. As a result, I have made great strides in learning the English language, and with God's help, I have gained much insight and understanding and have earned 18 credits in Bible college. In late 1990, Reverend Irving... I was saved, having accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, which has given me new meaning and purpose to my life. As I continue my studies, I have cause to reflect on the following passages: First John 4:13, which states, "Hereby know we that dwell in him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit." So as verse seven states, "Beloved, let us not let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God." This passage has particular meaning for me because of the Christian forgiveness of you and Mrs. Irving, which, in the face of your greatest sorrow, is the test of faith in His word and of His teachings. I cherish your forgiveness. And I know your heart is burdened with tremendous grief, just as I carry a burden for which I daily pray forgiveness and of his salvation. My burden is great for the pain I have caused your family and of mine. I feel so inadequate as I search my soul and heart for ways to make amends, but I know that the Lord can read my heart and soul in this, and I find soulless. Reverend Irving, I know these words cannot bring your dewey back. God knows my heart, and he knows that if I could undo what happened, that I would do so and relieve my own burden and your grief. But this, sadly, I cannot do, but I can devote the remainder of my life to serve God as I now seek his guidance and his forgiveness. Thank you for your regardfulness about my life. May God always be with you and Mrs. Irving, and may your life be a happy one. You and your family will always be in my prayers, with God's love, Tony. So in the words of One Republic, favorite band of mine, the song Preacher. So yes, my father, he was a preacher, something like a teacher, which I think is still continuing today. And his wealth, his strong foundation of faith and belief in the forgiveness born on the cross by Christ, was without earthly limits.